People Photoshop the word. They take it out of context, put it someplace it doesn't belong, make it fit, make it sound good, and create sermons and doctrines that causes people now to start quoting these photoshopped verses out of context and sometimes taking a part of the verse as if it's the whole verse. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. (laughs) And we who are students of the Bible, we should be students of the Bible. We shouldn't fall into the traps of men which will make you ignorant. You will be biblically ignorant while religiously zealous. And I'm going to tell you, a religious zealot is a dangerous person because they misrepresent the one they claim to represent. Can't take his word from over here, put it over here, mix it with a few verses over here or statements over here. What you did is that you've just mutinized the scripture. You created a mutant religion. And that's really what Christianity is. It's a mutation. It's a mutant religion of what is actually written. Shalom, saints, and welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the book of Exodus. I'm your host and teacher, Arthur Bailey. The writings of Moses given to him by Jehovah present a continual journey from creation to the deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt and the giving of the Torah, a.k.a. the law, a.k.a. the commandments of God. This week's podcast, we make the transition from the book of Moses, known as Genesis, into Exodus, also known as Shemot in Hebrew. Join us as this continuous journey continues as we discover interesting facts and answer probing questions about Exodus. Today's study title is Exodus, the Introduction. So, let's study. So again, today we're talking about Exodus, and we're going to be looking at the introduction. And again, I want to encourage you to take good notes today, because we are, as typical, uh, when we come together, we're going to be challenged in some areas. And where we learn better, we do better. Amen? And something that we're going to have to, I believe very strongly, we're going to have to learn and build up ourselves in the area of avoiding being trapped in conversations by zealots, being trapped in conversations by people who may see things a little bit different, who may pronounce things a little bit different, avoiding the arguments that get us nowhere, being steadfast in our faith. And the way I believe we're able to do that is that we stick to what is written. Today, we're going to be making the transition from Genesis to Exodus. Now, over the last few months, we have walked through the book of Genesis, and now we're transitioning. Now, the word Exodus is a Latin word derived from Greek exodus, 
And there's a couple of places in the New Testament where Exodus is found, but the word is not found in the Old Testament. However, we know that there are the New Testament words from the Greek and that during the time of the New Testament, the three main languages were Aramaic or Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. These were the languages that was written above the placard of Messiah, where it talks about the king of the Jews at his crucifixion. And so those were the three primary languages, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, that was being spoken at that time. And so Exodus is a Latin word that is derived from the Greek Exodus, the name given to the book by those who translated it into Greek. So ex, well, the word means to exit or to depart. That word exit could also mean to be deceased, to, to leave the world. You die. And so those places in the New Testament where it is found has to do with departing and exiting. The name was retained by the Latin Vulgate, by the Jewish author Philo, and by the Syriac version. And so we now have the word Exodus for the second book of the Bible. In Hebrew, the book is named after its first two words, Wilishemot. These are the names of. Now, I want to take a moment here and just show you some things that will help me in my presentation because what we're going to see is that the names that are given to the book of Moses, to the writings of Moses, was not given by Moses or by Jehovah. Jehovah didn't name these books, and Moses didn't name these books. And so even the Hebrew names that are given to us are given to us by some unnamed sources. <laughs> we don't know who named these books, the books that they are named. And yet people get passionate in their arguments about whether you say it in Hebrew or whether you say it in Greek. You know, you should use those Greek and Latin terms for the Hebrew names. And so they want you to say better sheet and put some emphasis on that better sheet, you know, and just make it sound as Hebrew as, as they can make it sound. And, and, you know, the word shemot, even viacra or viacra or, you know, and what is it? Dabarim, <laughs> you see? getting all, all the way into these words that are given to us by some unnamed source. And the, the name Exodus or Shemot comes from these words. Now, these are the names of. These are the names of. That's where we get the Hebrew name Shemot given to us by some unnamed sources. These are the names 
of the children of Israel, which came into Egypt, every man in his household came with Jacob, which should be Israel. Now, the same phrase occurs in Genesis 46, verse 8. So should Exodus start at Genesis 46, verse 8? Because it says these words, and these are the names. So that's Shemot, right? It's right here. I'm not making this stuff up, folks. But I'm trying to show us that there are some things that people fight over that when you look behind the scene, they're not worth fighting over. Use your energy to fight for things worth fighting over or fighting for if there are certain things. But you will always deal with zealots. And zealots are individuals who are willing to kill for what they believe, to fight to the death. They're so zealous, zealous, and many zealots are not according, they're not zealous according to what is written. They're zealous according to what they believe. And if you're going to fight, make sure that what you are zealous for is for what is written versus for what you believe. And I'll show you why. So in Genesis 46, verse 8, this exact phrase that we get the name for the second book of Moses, Shemot, is found in Genesis 46, verse 8. Now, it's found three more times before this. <laughs> the phrase, these are the names of, is found in Genesis 25, 13. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael. Genesis 36.10. These are the names of Esau's son. Same phrase. Genesis 36.40. And these are the names of. So using this particular pattern, this Hebrew process of identifying the name of a book in the Bible and then giving it a Hebrew name doesn't make it sacred, doesn't make it holy. And I'll show you why it's important for us not to be swallowing camels while straining at gnats. The name Exodus is a very shallow and incomplete name for a book that is about so much more than the children of Israel leaving Egypt. If Exodus means to depart, then they departed in Exodus chapter 12. So from that point on, what do you call it? Because they've exited it, <laughs> right? Now, here are some words not found in the Bible that we get very, very excited about. They're not found in the Old Testament, at least. Genesis, 
Do a search on, on the word Genesis in your Bible software and see how many times it pop up. Lee, you got your, just search Genesis. Search Exodus. Search Leviticus. Search Deuteronomy. And if you do a search on numbers, you're going to find that it exists in the Torah, but it is not referencing a book of the Bible. None of these names are referenced in the Bible concerning a book of the Bible that people are so passionate about and how you pronounce it and whether you use the Hebrew, the Latin, or the pagan Greek. And this is why I just have to ignore these people. It's not that I'm not going to get baited into your arguments because I know you don't even know what you are arguing. Somebody then told you something, you've locked into it, and now you are, that's your ballywick, that's your band, you, that's your soapbox, and you want to use that to attack other people when in essence, it's not even a good attack. Oh, but that's just the beginning, or should I say, the better sheet. Jehovah did not give the books of Moses names. Man did. Man's process of naming the books of the Bible varies. There are Hebrew names, Greek names, and Latin names. Now, this may shock you, and maybe it won't, but up through the New Testament writings, the books of Moses were called just that. It was called the book of Moses. There were no chapters. There were no verses. There was no Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It was simply the book of Moses. His reference, Mark 12, 26. And this is why you don't find the names of these books in the Bible. You can't find their names. You can do a word searching and you won't find those names because those names are not mentioned. In Mark chapter 12, as touching the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush Jehovah spake unto him saying, I am the Jehovah of Abraham and Jehovah of Isaac and Jehovah of Jacob? This is Moses' encounter with the Almighty at the bush. But what is Mark referring it to? He's not referring it to Exodus. He's referring to the book of Moses. In fact, you will find the term phrase book of Moses several times if you do a word search. If you look up book of Moses, you will find book of Moses in various places, I believe, beginning around 1 Chronicles. The division of the book of Moses into five books and the naming of those books were the work of men, not Moses or Jehovah. And so if you're going to make an argument about something, make sure that your argument is not man-made. Don't be arguing about man-made stuff. If you're going to make an argument 
make your argument based on the facts of Scripture, and you will find that you will not have as many arguments, which we really shouldn't be arguing anyway. So I'm really trying to help you get out of those places so that you can focus your energy, focus your breath, focus your words on the truth of Scripture, not the stuff men give us as truth. The Exodus was an event that took place in chapter 12. Most of the book deals with the Israelites after the Exodus, which causes one to question the English title Exodus. I mean, so again, let's not get stuck. The term Shemot names is mentioned of those who entered. Those who entered and those who exited were a different generation. Indicating Shemot may not have been the best Hebrew title to give to the book in the first place. Because as we looked at it, these are the names of the children of Israel, which came into Egypt. At that time, you can count them when they left. (laughs) You can't tell us the names of those who left. Some people get angry when you refer to the book of Moses by the Greek or Latin names instead of the Hebrew names, as if the Hebrew words chosen by unnamed individuals and given to the books are sacred names. In Genesis, Moses tells us about Jehovah. In Exodus, Jehovah tells us about himself. Now, I'm not going to try to change the names, but oftentimes you'll hear me refer to the book of Moses. All of the writings in the Bible, and this is why man's attempt to help us in, in many cases have done us more harm because now people take a verse out of the context of the writing. When you remove a verse out of the context of the writing, you can change what the verse is saying by putting it in a different context. It's like some of these presidential commercials, photoshopped, where they take a something you say here and then something you say over there and then something you say over here and then make it all seem like you said it in one sentence. It's taking the head of somebody and putting it on the body of somebody else and doing it so well to where you think that that's that person's head and body is one in the same. People Photoshop the word. They take it out of context, put it someplace it doesn't belong, make it fit, make it sound good and create sermons and doctrines that causes people now to start quoting these photoshopped verses out of context and sometimes taking a part of the verse as if it's the whole verse. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. (laughs) And we who are students of the Bible, we should be students of the Bible. 
we shouldn't fall into the traps of men, which will make you ignorant. You will be biblically ignorant while religiously zealous. And I'm going to tell you, a religious zealot is a dangerous person because they misrepresent the one they claim to represent. Can't take his word from over here, put it over here, mix it with a few verses over here or statements over here. What you did is that you've just mutinized the scripture. You've created a mutant religion. And that's really what Christianity is. It's a mutation. It's a mutant religion of what is actually written. And what's so interesting is how people can denounce the Old Testament while at the same time quote the Old Testament. If Solomon was truly the wisest man, then it would behoove us to really look at the wisdom of Solomon. If David was a man after God's own heart, what made him a man after God's own heart? I'll tell you what made him a man after God's own heart. People say, well, when God confronted him, he came clean. He admitted what he did. Now, what made David a man after Jehovah's own heart is he understood his law. And when he realized he had violated his law, he acknowledged, I, I messed up. I did something I shouldn't have done. How did he know he shouldn't have done it? Because the law said he shouldn't have done it. What you did, you shouldn't have done that. You violated the law. You coveted another man's wife. You had that man killed so you could have that man's wife. That is a violation of the commandment. David, you, you had all these women you could have had. All of them. And you're going to take another man's wife? What's wrong with you? David, that's a problem. And so father reveals himself to the people in Genesis. Moses tell us about Jehovah. He showed himself to the patriarchs and who were these, these fathers. See, when people think of the patriarchs, they think of Abraham. They go back to Abraham. But how many of you know the patriarchs go all the way back to Adam? Adam was the first patriarch. And Noah. There would be no Abraham if there were no Adam. There would be no Abraham if there were no Noah. And so Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Israel. This is who Genesis reveals. Father reveals himself to these individuals in Genesis. In Exodus, Jehovah reveals himself to Moses and the children of Israel in preparation to reveal himself to the world. Now, the world should have known him, but they didn't have that personal touch. They didn't know that the creator of the universe, Abraham wasn't the first one that father spoke to. He spoke to Noah. Noah wasn't the first one that father spoke to. He spoke to Adam. And so now he reveals himself to these individuals. Now he's about to reveal himself to a group of individuals that he's going to formate a nation from and then set this nation up in front of the world so that the world may know him through them. And the world is supposed to know him now through who? Us. 
And this is what Exodus reveals in this portion of Moses writings. Jehovah gathers the people, establish his earthly kingdom with the people, dwelled in the midst of them, gave them a constitution that included instructions on how they were to come before him in worship and how to govern themselves in the earth. He established his government with Israel first. The earthly kingdom of Israel depicted the kingdom of Jehovah that he would eventually establish as revealed in the last book of the Bible, where all people would be invited to worship him together or suffer the consequences of not worshiping him and him alone. Exodus and the other writings given to Moses, it's not about Israel. They're about Jehovah. Although Jehovah chose the people of Israel, he used them as an example for the inhabitants of the earth. Well, that was for them Jews. You know, it wasn't for them Jews. It was for the people. Jehovah made known to this group of people how he wanted to make himself known to all creation. And so what did he do? He found an example. He established an example by intimately developing the relationship with this people. He used it as an example to show the world how he desired to be intimately related to all his creation, regardless to what nation you are from. This is the whole purpose of the gospel. The gospel is to be preached to what? All nations. And so here we see where father begins to formulate the beginning of relationship with the group of individuals to show the world how every nation can have this relationship with its creator. The writings given to Moses, as well as the right, the rest of the Bible central character is Jehovah. Now here's what the canons, those who established canon in the early days, the way they established a book of the Bible as being inspired by the most high is that the most high was the central theme of the book. They said, how can a book of the Bible be inspired by the almighty? If the almighty is not mentioned in the book of the Bible. And so there are books where he's not mentioned. So the central character of all the books is about Jehovah. Him introducing himself to individuals, him introducing himself to a nation, a people rebelling against him, him calling them back to him, him calling the nations to repent, sending his son with the message of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then establishing that kingdom to where people of all nations will be able to come and worship him, which was part of his grand theme when he established the temple, established the tabernacle in the offset, that it would be a house of prayer for all nations. 
And so we see the beginning of the formation here where father is preparing to present himself and to introduce himself to the world. If a people don't have a relationship with the creator, how can you tell people about the creator? The Old Testament begins with Jehovah and the New Testament begins with the son of Jehovah who was sent by Jehovah. The Old Testament ends with Jehovah and the New Testament ends with the son of Jehovah who was sent by Jehovah. <laughs> Therefore, as you can see from the first generation to the last generation, from Genesis to Revelation, Jehovah is the central character and focus of all the writings. From Genesis to Revelation and everything in between, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, and the end is all about Jehovah. The feasts are all about Jehovah. He is the central focus of creation, and He is the central focus of our lives. If anything else is the central focus of our lives, we are men most miserable. We are in serious as where I come from, doo-doo. I don't know how else to say it without using some vocal. I mean, you get the point. We in trouble, big trouble. Jehovah shows in this book how he can defend the least of these against the most powerful of men. He took slaves and the most powerful of men, the Pharaoh at the time, and demonstrated how he is in defense of the least of these. This is a theme Yeshua talks about how you know, when it talks about what you do unto the least of these, my brethren, you do unto him. Why? Because at the time, the least of these were Israel. They were being oppressed. They were being mistreated. They had been put in bondage. They were the property of Egypt, so it thought. And there are times when, you know, we have to understand that our father cares as much about us as he did the children of Israel. Why? Because we are his children. If you separate yourself from the most dramatic display of his power for the oppressed, the most dramatic display of Jehovah's power for the oppressed is found right here in this book. And we're going to look at it. And so we'll answer these questions, give you some more brief information, and we'll open up this introduction for questions. So who wrote the Exodus, <laughs> as it is called? Moses. Now, there are some modern theologians with their modern means who are trying to say that it's amazing because they got to get to this somehow. If theologians of the day can say that we are not under the law, the common practice 
is to disqualify the law. And now there are some who are saying that the book of Moses is a bunch of myths, things that didn't happen. And this is why some feel that they've got to now prove, they've got to prove that these things did happen by presenting physical evidence to individuals whose minds are already made up it didn't happen. The Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, is, come on, y'all. Some of this stuff about, I mean, you know, when you think about it from a logical standpoint, it don't make sense how rods turned to serpents, and serpents that once was rods ate other serpents that used to be rods, and the serpent that was once a rod that ate other serpents that used to be rod turned back to a rod. I mean, these make for fanciful stories. Much of what we find in the Old Testament requires faith. This is why it's easy for some people to go into some kind of science explanation for creation. They can get into evolution. They can get into science. They can mix science with scripture. And now they're trying to explain things that you can't explain trying to prove, you know, trying to coexist. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Father is spirit, period. It requires faith. But can I tell you something? It requires faith to believe God doesn't exist. Because you got to ignore a whole lot of stuff. (laughs) It requires faith to believe in Buddha. It requires faith to believe in Krishna. To believe in anything requires faith. And father says, you know, I had a young man who asked, well, how can you prove that the Bible is real? I can't. I don't think anybody can. I mean, it's a book just like so many other books. If I walk into the public library and I go into the religious section, There's going to be a lot of holy books. There are going to be books of various religions. They'll be printed in in, in some leather bound. They'll have beautiful inscriptions. Some will be pictorious. There will be a lot of different books that if I was looking for faith, I can go to the public library, blindfoldly go to a shelf and pick a book and take my blindfold off and read it, and for me to believe what's in it requires faith. The reason why, as I explained, I believe this book is because of all the books that I've read, this is the only one that gives a clear explanation for how things began. Science doesn't have a clear explanation for how things began. It shows me in the beginning, this is what happened. And it makes sense. There's some stuff out there. When I, was, when I was reading about some of these other religions and how there is no beginning origin in many of them, the philosophies. But if you hear something over and over and over, you take it as 
depending on who it's coming from, as true until you get to a point to where you start questioning everything, which is the, the growth and cycle of human beings. So who wrote Exodus? From the evidence that we have, Moses. Now you can find Moses all the way through it. Why was it written? Exodus is a written account of Jehovah's dealings with the children of Israel and the giving of the written law, the constitution of his kingdom on earth. When? Now this is a little bit of a challenge and this is why you have other writings. Like if you look at first Kings six, one, the Bible tells us in first Kings six, one, it says, and it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel will come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month Ziph. Now, how many of you have ever seen the month Ziph on a Hebrew calendar or a Jewish calendar? It don't exist. You see, the second month was called Ziph before Babylon. After Babylon, it was called what? Eyah. But here's something that the Jews did is they took Babylonian words and gave them Jewish names. And of course, now it's Hebrew. You take a Babylonian word and bring it into Hebrew, give it a Hebrew name. And now you're reading Babylonian in Hebrew. It's no different than me taking a foreign book and have it translated into English. You get what I'm saying? And so here we find, and it's not the only place we find the month Ziph, but Solomon was before the Babylonian captivity and there were names given to months like Aviv or Abib, which you don't find now is Nisan. So you've got Jewish and even some Hebrew calendars claiming to be Hebrew, but using Babylonian terminology for the names of months. And then some who want to rail on you because you use the Gregorian name of months. It's like Ziph was the Hebrew name of the second month before the Babylonian captivity. Again, after the captivity, Jews gave the Babylonian month a Hebrew name. Here is a list. This is a side note, y'all. Here's a list of the current months on the Hebrew calendar. Now, I challenge you with these names. Do a word search on these names, and most of them you won't find in the Bible. You get what I'm saying? Where did they come from? Let me tell you where they came from. They came from the pagans. So you got religious zealots railing against pagans or the use of pagan terms while using pagan terms. I'm only pointing this stuff out because I, I can't tell you how many times I have had to, and I don't even do it no more, defend using English terms instead of using the Hebrew terms. Well, well, bro, if you understood the Hebrew words and where they came from, I think you would see that your argument does not have legs. 
you don't have a valid argument. And so I'm not going to try to prove to a fool they're fool. Because, you know, the Bible tells us if you rebuke a fool, they'll do what? They'll turn on you. So I just learned to leave fools alone. Certainly don't get in no argument one with one, because if you're in an argument with a fool, that's how you know you're in an argument. Rational people don't argue. What are you arguing for? Somebody is not listening. Somebody is not hearing the other person. And so you're shouting over one another. Just like state your case and slowly do one of those church Baptist numbers, you know, exit stage right or stage left or wherever the exit is. But you want to get out of that conversation real quick and let them take that argument to the next person. Many of these names given to months on the Jewish calendar are not found in scripture. But as I said, many of these zealous rail against people for using Gregorian names while they use Babylonian names. So to whom or for what purpose was Exodus written? Exodus lays a foundational theology in which, and some people say, well, you know, if it's the book of Moses, why do you keep using the Exodus? Because that is how it's compartmentalized in the Bible. That's why. Now, I know in your Bible, it may say Shemot. But it's still the book of Moses. It's a division. A name was given to it for the sake of study. I can't tell you to turn to the book of Moses chapter. uh, Maybe, I guess, in reality, but then we would have to rewrite the Bible because if Moses, well, one, Moses didn't have chapters in verse, but if Genesis stopped in chapter 50, I guess this would be the book of Moses chapter 51. And we just continue all that way. But for the sake of these divisions, we operate here. So Exodus lays a foundational theology in which God reveals his name, his attributes, his redemption, his law, and how he is to be worshiped and that he and his should be all caps. I know some folks can't stand that, but that's the way it is in the King James. He is not capitalized in every place or his. Anyway, Exodus also reports the appointment and work of the first covenant mediator. Actually, um, yeah, it does. It, it points because Exodus shows us the covenant between Jehovah and the children of Israel. But there are other covenants in Genesis before Exodus. So it's the first covenant as it relates to the children of Israel. It's not the first covenant in the book or the book of Moses. It describes the beginnings of the priesthood, defines the role of the prophet and relates how the ancient covenant relationship between Elohim and his people were formed by him. Again, the central focus is Jehovah. And then here are the central themes. And this, I believe is my last slide. The central themes is covenant relationship. 
deliverance, redemption, salvation, the law, the tabernacle, and worship. And so we'll see worship. We saw worship in the first book in Genesis. We saw worship with Abel. We saw worship with Noah. We saw worship with Abraham, with Isaac, with Israel. And we're going we're gonna to see that there are idolatrous worship and true worship the way Father desires to be worshipped and he makes clear how he don't want to be worshipped. And so with all of that, we bring this portion to a close. Amen? Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can find more inspirational teachings and download our free ebooks on our ministry website at arthurbaileyministries.com. Please follow us on Facebook at House of Israel Arthur Bailey Ministries, on Instagram at Apostle Arthur Bailey, on Twitter at Apostle Bailey, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Apostle Arthur Bailey One. If you're in the Charlotte area, please come and fellowship with us. We'll do our best to make you feel right at home. Our address is on our website at the About link under Contact Us. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, Shalom Saints.